book of Leviticus, as Harlan already mentioned this morning and shared, it is so good to be with you all and to see you here today. Such an incredible blessing. I wandered down to the barn last night at about 8 o'clock. I had to get my, my guitar tuner, so I was changing some strings. And I just came down here and wandered in the door and closed it behind me and came up to the front and got my stuff. And, and I turned around and I just got struck by what I saw. And it wasn't all the chairs, it was all the souls. Because as I stood there last night, I just I was thinking how many of these chairs are, are being filled these days. And how God is just doing an incredible thing. And it was, it was overwhelming. And you need to know it's a blessing for me just to be able to stand up here and look out and see your faces. Uh, you may not think that when you look in the mirror in the morning, but I think that right now. And I am blessed and we all are blessed. And we have a job to do here. And that job, exactly as, as Harlan shared, is to be the church. The church needs to learn how to be the church. And it's very simple. Scripture tells us how to be the church. And it begins with love. And it's also connected to holiness. And we're going to talk about that this morning. But first, flip in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 11. Chapter 11. Now, we have gone through the book of Genesis. We've gone through the book of Exodus. Some have wondered, were you really going to keep going when you got to Leviticus? You betcha. Leviticus chapter 11. I want to start there this morning. Wednesday night, we're going to hit chapter 1, possibly. Well, we're going to do several chapters. We'll see what happens Wednesday night. But we're going to start off there and begin studying through. But this morning, I want to introduce you to the book. I want to share with you some things that I found out, discovered, learned just over the past month or two of kind of studying ahead and, and trying to be ready for this. And I'm amazed at what I've found. But Leviticus chapter 11. Chapter 11. I got all the way into numbers. Hang on. Beginning in verse 44. Just follow along. Leviticus 11.44 For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy. For I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy. For I am holy. Father, this is a tall order. This is beyond us. To be holy as you are holy, Lord. We we just sang, Father, holy is the Lamb. And we believe and know this to be true. The perfect, spotless Lamb, Jesus Christ, who who gave himself on the cross. The only one who could do it but, but me, Lord. Us. You want us to be holy. God, that frightens me. Because I don't think I'm up to it. And I know I'm not alone in this. But Lord, we do know this. We know you have an agenda. And if holiness is on your agenda, then Lord, we pray you would do your work. And and work it in us. And make happen the things that you have planned ahead of time to happen in our lives. And may we just be willing recipients of your holiness. Speak to us this morning, Father, by your Holy Spirit. May we understand your word better and more clearly. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The book of Leviticus. 
Leviticon is the Greek word for it, and that's actually where the name comes from, is the Greek, not the Hebrew. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you know the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. But the word Leviticus is not a Hebrew word. It's from a Greek word, Leviticon. The Greek word meaning pertaining to the Levites, or pertaining to the priests. For when the Septuagint was written, Septuagint, what's that? I'll tell you in a second. But when it was written, it was a translation from Hebrew into Greek. And at that point, the name Leviticon was ascribed to this book. That's where we get the name. But that wasn't the original name of the book. The Septuagint, what was that? i got to tell you, there's just a side note really quick for you to know. About 300 years, somewhere between 300 to 200 years before Christ, a group of 70 Hebrew scholars came together and they translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And why did they do that? Well, for their part, it was because of the Hellenistic Jews. Jews at that time were beginning to spread out, and so there were a lot of Jews that were beginning to lose their Hebrew language. Hebrew was beginning to fall off. As a matter of fact, it was at this time when Hebrew began some of its decline. And so as the Hebrew was falling off, there was concern that all the Jewish people would know the word, would still have access to the Holy Scriptures. So these 70 Hebrew scholars came together. And they wrote, they translated from the Hebrew to the Greek, the Septuagint. It's very important. It's a very important document in the church, even to today. But the value of the Septuagint, and I share this with you for a different reason. By the way, 70 Hebrew scholars. Yeah, get that phone out of here. I don't want to have to answer it for you. Hey. <laughs> the word Septuagint is from the word 70. Or 70 comes from Septuagint. That's why it's called that, because it was written by the 70. It was translated by these 70 guys. But what's interesting is it happened about 200 years or so, like I said, before Jesus came into the world. Which would be absolutely strategic and critical because many of the people who came to know Christ, who became believers in Christ in the first century, were Gentiles. Were non-Hebrew speaking folk. And they needed access to the Holy Scriptures. Well, God knew this ahead of time and so He sovereignly planned ahead. He made sure that the Old Testament Scriptures, which are just as important, by the way, as the New... He made sure that those would be available for the first century church 200 years ahead of time. But that's how God works. That's how He does things. Two years before the Bridge Christian Fellowship met on this property for the first time, there was a drafty old barn that stood in this place. And the wind, <laughs> the wind blew it down. And the insurance company said, you need a new barn? It's right on. God sovereignly knew ahead of time that there was going to be a need, not just for a drafty old barn to hold hay, but a barn with concrete, for goodness sake, and electricity. And I was sharing this morning with a friend that, that when I first saw this barn, not having any idea that we were going to meet here, never having met Rod and Barb Gilmore before, I saw the barn driving down Monkey Hill and I said, See, that would be perfect. Something like that would be a great place for a church to meet. And here we are. Why? Because God plans ahead. Because He is sovereign in all His design. So the Septuagint calls Leviticus Leviticon. That's where we get the word again, meaning pertaining to the Levites or the priests. The Jewish Talmud also refers to Leviticus as the law of the priests. But you need to know something about this book. It is so much more. It is so much more. It does complete the law of God for Israel. 
And it certainly pertains to the ministry of the priests, but it is also considered by many scholars to be one of the most important books in all the Bible. There are some, J. Vernon McGee, who says he thinks it's the most important book. Leviticus? Are you kidding? That's the book that we make jokes out of. We pull out obscure laws and we throw them out there and laugh about them. Are you kidding me? Leviticus being one of the most important books in all Scripture? Well, the New Testament references it some 40 different times. The book of Leviticus contains more of the directly quoted words of God, spoken from the mouth of God, than any other book in the Bible. I would say that's important. I would say that's a book worth cracking. In 1846, Andrew Bonar wrote the following about Leviticus. He said, God is the direct speaker in almost every page. His gracious words are recorded in the form wherein they were uttered. The gospel of the grace of God, with all that follows in its train, may be found in Leviticus. This is the glorious attraction of the book to every reader who feels himself a sinner. And let me just ask you, do you feel yourself a sinner this morning? Well, guess what? You're in the right book. You're also in the right place. You see, the church is not the place for all the religious people. It is the place for the sinners. This is where we gather as a fellowship, where we recognize we don't have it all together. We know we're sinners. We know we're not holy. And yet God calls us together to tell us something amazing. He loves us. His grace is for us. He forgives us even before we sought that forgiveness. You are in the right book, Leviticus. Let me tell you something. There are two circulating lies that Satan uses to keep people from studying certain biblical works. Two lies that tend to go around. The first one is it's just too hard to understand. That's often applied to the book of Revelation. It's too hard to understand, Satan says. We go, oh, it's too hard to understand. Better not read that one. And we miss it. We miss out on incredible teachings by the Lord. That we need. That's why it's here. What about the book of Leviticus? Well, the other lie is that it's boring and it's irrelevant. Let me just go on record as saying there is not a single boring, irrelevant word in the Bible. The whole thing is applicable to our lives. God wants you to be in this book. He wants you to know it. This is His love letter, His message to us. Not just one verse here, one verse there. A scripture here, a scripture there. Every single word of every scripture, of every page, of every book of the Bible is His way of saying, I love you and I want to communicate with you. Too hard to understand? Boring, irrelevant, these are lies from one who would keep you from the Lord. And by the way, here's a little hint. If there's something keeping you from Bible study, or specifically opening a certain book in the Bible, maybe you need to open the book. There's a hint for you. Wednesday night comes along and you're about to head out the door but you're tired and it's been a long day and you're thinking, oh, I don't know about going to Bible study tonight. I'm not sure if I'm up for it. I, I just don't know if I... Right there you know you need to go. Get in the Word, folks. Be in the Word. Well, I told you the Greek name, Leviticon. I mentioned the Talmudic reference of the law of the priest. What about the Hebrew name for Leviticus? What's the original name? What was it originally called? I'll tell you in a minute. Hang on. But this morning I want to give you three keys to unlock this book. Three simple keys that if you understand this, make the book open up and, and make sense to you, possibly in ways it hasn't before. You remember the key word for Exodus, don't you? Who remembers what we said the key word for the book of Exodus was? 
Redemption. Right on, Jim. Redemption is the key word. In the book of Exodus, the whole story is the story of redemption. God redeeming His people out of the land of Egypt, bringing them back at least toward the promised land. They're not there yet. They're actually still at Mount Sinai at this point. Redemption. But the key word for Leviticus is holiness. Holiness. The word holiness, kadosh in the Hebrew, is used 47 times in the book of Exodus. It's amped up to 91 times in the book of Leviticus. Holiness. And eight times in the Bible, God calls out from the pages of Scripture, Be holy, for I am holy. This is not just a one-shot deal, or two-shot, or three-shot. It's not that God occasionally mentions it eight times in Scripture. He says, My people, be holy, because I am holy. It's a phrase that we have a tendency to kind of recoil from. Because again, it seems so far away from where we are, doesn't it? Peter quotes it. He says in 1 Peter 1.15, Like the Holy One who calls you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. But what does that mean? Be holy for I am holy. Well, what does it mean that God is holy? Psalm 113 verse 5. Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high? Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? God is holy. What's that mean? He is separate. God is distinct. He's unique. He is different. That is holiness. To be separate and unique consecrated, dedicated to the Lord. That is holiness. That's the nature of God and that's what He wants for His people. John chapter 17, verse 15, the night before He died, Jesus said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. That's holiness. To not be of the world. To be different. To be unique. To be separate. In a day when the church is trying so hard to look like the world. We're not supposed to look like the world. People should look at Christians and go, Huh, that's odd. That's strange. That's just like different. Right. Holiness. Different. Unique. Warren Wiersbe says this about the church today. He says, whatever else the professing Christian church may be known for today, great crowds, expensive buildings, <laughs> big budgets, political clout, it is not distinguished for its holiness. Bible-believing evangelical Christians make up a sizable minority in the United States, but our presence isn't making much of an impact on society. The salt seems to have lost its saltiness, and the light is so well hidden that the marketplace is quite dark. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, God says, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, and I believe this is the greatest need of the church today. Holiness. Oh, wait a minute, Rick. I think the greatest need of the church today is love. Isn't it love? Shouldn't love be the issue? No, I don't think so. Now listen to this. You can't have one without the other. You can't have love as a child of God without holiness. 
And you certainly can't have holiness without love. These two things are in concert. They must go together. 1 John 1.5 tells us, This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Absolute purity, holiness, completely separate and distinct. God is light. But John also writes in 1 John 4.16, When we've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us, God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. God is light. God is love. God is perfect holiness. He is perfect mercy, compassion, graciousness, love. Holiness and love together. And Augustus Strong, in his book Systematic Theology, wrote the following, Love is central in God, but holiness is central in love. Love without holiness would result in travesties of justice. Love without holiness would result in lost people staying lost. What do you mean? Well, love would say, if someone's homosexual, just love them anyway because, hey, it doesn't matter. Just show them love and show them grace. And don't say anything about the fact that it's abhorrent to God. That's love. I just want to love and be gracious to the person. But holiness says that disgusts the Lord. Goodness sakes, how do we have both? How, how do I have the, 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 the holiness along with the love? How do I pair those two together? But God does it perfectly. Does God love a homosexual person? Absolutely. Does God accept homosexual behavior? Absolutely not. Love and holiness. Why? Why would God be so harsh about that? Because that homosexual person that God loves so much, if they aren't made aware of the fact that what they are doing is sinning, they will never go to heaven. They will never make it to where the Father is. And God wants them there. He wants them there. Love and holiness together. Both are perfectly balanced in the divinity, in the nature, in the works of God. Love and holiness. It's not an either or. Now there are some distinct differences worth noting between Exodus, which we just finished, and Leviticus as we begin here. In Exodus, God offers pardon. In Leviticus, God invites purity. In Exodus, it details God's approach to man. Leviticus details man's approach to God. Exodus talks about man's guilt. It shows man's guilt as prominent. In Leviticus, we discover man's sin nature is prominent. In Exodus, God speaks from the mountain. In Leviticus, God speaks from the tabernacle, which is now constructed. As a matter of fact, in the first verses, God begins to speak to Moses. He is speaking from out of the tabernacle. He is now, His glory has filled the tabernacle, which the Hebrew people have constructed. They're still at Mount Sinai, but God now is among them, speaking to them. This is very personal. And the book of Exodus, by the way, pictures Christ as the Savior while Leviticus reveals Christ as the sanctifier. Jesus again? He's in the book of Leviticus? Oh, yes, He is. You see, many of us were stunned as we studied through Genesis and Exodus to see how much Jesus showed up. Not only in person, but in reference, in type, in pictures, all over the place. Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. A picture of God sacrificing Jesus happened on the same mountain, in the same place. On and on it goes, these pictures of Christ. And not only is holiness the key word to the book of Leviticus, but your second key, the key personality in Leviticus, is Christ. The key personality is Jesus. 
As the old saying goes, Christ is in the Old Testament concealed and in the New Testament revealed. He's here. He's on these pages. And you will see Him over the next few weeks. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning and all things came into being through Him and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. If Jesus was with God in the beginning, if Jesus was God, then Jesus appearing in the book of Leviticus should not surprise us at all. Galatians chapter 3 verse 23. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. And the book of Leviticus is full of the law. Why? To lead us to Christ. You're going to see Jesus on these pages. Revelation 19.10 tells us, one of my favorite verses, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's the point. To focus us toward, to help us to see Jesus better. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says, For the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of the things. And Colossians 2.17, speaking of the Old Testament law, says, These things are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance, the substance belongs to Christ. The key personality in the book of Leviticus is Jesus Christ, and you will see that. Again, Andrew Bonar writes the following. He says, Christ is the center truth of all biblical revelation. The body or substance of the law is Christ. And it is this Messiah that has been from the beginning the object to be unveiled in the view of men. And he gives this great example. Listen to this. He says, suppose one of you, or one to whom you were a stranger, was wrapped in a thick veil. Someone you didn't know, wrapped up in a thick veil, so that you could not discern his features. Still, if the lineaments were pointed out to you through the folds, you could form some idea of the beauty and form of the one who was under the veil. But suppose that one who you know, and one who you love, whose features you have often studied face to face were to be veiled up this way. How easily you would discern the features and form, form of this beloved one. And he goes on and says, Just so the Jews looked upon a veiled Savior whom they had never seen unveiled. But we under the New Testament, we look upon an unveiled Savior and going back to the old, we can see far better the features and form of Jesus, the Beloved, through that veil. We can see Jesus once the veil has been lifted. I love that example. I thought about Cheryl when I read it. Cheryl, my wife, whose face I have seen over and over, who I have studied, who I have looked into her eyes. I know every contour of her face. Put a veil over her and I could still describe her. I could still see her. I would still know her. And so it is as we go through Leviticus. Christ is concealed within these pages, but you will see through the veil. You will see him unveiled before you. I'll I'll give you an example. The first seven chapters of Leviticus detail five sacrificial offerings that the priest is supposed to oversee for Israel. Five sacrificial offerings, but they're not just religious rites. For every single one of these five offerings are actually five silhouettes of the Savior. Five pictures of the profile of the person of Jesus. Five cameos, if you will, of the Christ. As we look at these offerings, we're going to see Christ in every one. Jesus is the center point. He is the key personality in the book of Leviticus. Would you keep your finger in Leviticus and flip over to Hebrews chapter 10 for a moment? Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. 
was touched on a couple verses out of this section before. I want you to hear it in context. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, as we consider this personality of Christ in Leviticus. Hebrews 10, 5 says, Therefore, when He comes into the world, speaking of Jesus, He says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. Listen to this. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So five offerings as this book opens up, and every one of them are shadows of the offering of Jesus Christ. Well, that's kind of coincidental. How, how could God do that? Have you ever thought about how an author writes a book? About how you'll get into the pages of the book and go, man, how did this person... Oh, and you're so surprised. Getting toward the end of a book, maybe some character acts in such a way that you didn't expect them to. And you're so amazed, you're so surprised, you're so impressed at how the author somehow put it all together and brought you to that point. How did they do it? They planned it ahead. They're not the reader, they're the author. They know what they're doing, they have it all laid out. Like the barn two years before we met here. God had it all planned out. And so as we read the Old Testament, as we study through the book of Leviticus, understand he was at that time writing the story that would be fulfilled in Christ, painting the pictures that we would see in Jesus. Well, it sounds like Jesus is awfully important, Rick. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. If you think you saw a lot of Jesus in Leviticus, you ain't seen nothing yet. Now, before we finish up this morning, one more key. I've given you two. The key word of, of Leviticus is holiness. The key personality is Christ Jesus. But there are a group of key recipients for this book. The people for whom this book is intended. Listen up. You might say that's easy. It's Israel, right? Look at Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. Leviticus 1, verse 1. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Stop right there. <laughs> he didn't say stop right there, I did. So thank you for looking up. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And in this verse we have the key recipients of the book. The people for whom the book was written. Those to whom God would say, I want you to listen, I want you to pay attention. This is for you. What are you talking about, Rick? The Hebrew title for the book of Leviticus. It is literally pronounced, Vayikra. Vayikra. If you don't know any Hebrew ones, that's Hebrew words, that's a good word to know. Vayikra. Would you just say that after me? Vayikra. Very good. Is that pretty close, Frank? Does that sound Jewish? Okay, good. Vayikra. What in the world is Vayikra? And how is it the title of this book? Often in the Hebrew scriptures, the title is just the first few words. Look at them. Then the Lord called. In the Hebrew Bible, Vayikras, the Lord called. That's the title of the book of Leviticus. And it indicates to us the recipients of this book. You Bible students know the Greek equivalent to the Lord called, the called out. 
Ekklesia. Ekklesia is used in the New Testament Greek. It is the word that every time when you read the word church in the New Testament, it's Ekklesia. The called out ones. Those who are the called. And the book of Leviticus is written to the called. Those who are called by God. They are the key recipients. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The called, the chosen, the church. And I've got to tell you this. I wasn't going to. We're going to get to it later, but i, I got to burst the bubble ahead of time. This is amazing. Something else that is talked about in the book of Leviticus is three of the Hebrew festivals, the annual festivals. God will say to the Jewish people, three times you are to come up to Jerusalem. Three times you and your families, your men, come together and celebrate these festivals before the Lord. One of those festivals is a festival that you know of as Pentecost. Pentecost involves a a unique ritual. It's called the waving of the Omer where the priest will take two sheets of basically wheat cakes, leavened wheat cakes, and wave them as an offering before the Lord as part of this celebration, this festival. It's interesting. I was looking at this last night. Reading a book by Victor, how do I say his last name, Buzz Bacon, I think, I don't know, it's probably not right. Um, It's a book called, uh, what is it called? (laughs) (laughs) The Gospel and the Feast of Israel, that's what it's called. I'll get to the author's name if you're interested in this book. A thin book, but a fascinating book, written by a man who was Jewish all his life, but converted to Christianity through the study of the scriptures. But he tells this, he asks these questions, why is it that the the omer, the waving of these two wheat cakes, for one thing, why are they leavened? Because in all the other feasts, God says unleavened, because leaven is a picture of sin. Get the sin out. But with Pentecost, there's a waving of these two pieces of bread, basically, both filled with leaven. Why leaven and why two? Well, leaven's a picture of sin. Why two? It's a picture of Israel and the church both who are filled with sin both who are made up of sinners who God alone can make holy who God alone can purify and make righteous that's in the book of Leviticus and we'll get more about that as we get closer to it in those feasts they're amazing the called are the recipients of this book the chosen the church but what have we been called to? holiness holiness Not prideful piosity or hypocritical haughtiness. Not competition. Not territoriality. Not greed. Not empire building. That is not the church Jesus claimed. That is not the church Jesus died for. The church is simply people who want to be like Jesus. That's it. Gathering together to love and to learn more about Jesus. To learn about holiness. We are called to be the church of the Bible. I just read this the other night. Chuck Colson has a new book out. Several years ago, he wrote a landmark book that I would encourage anybody to read. It changed the direction of my thinking as regards to the church. It's called The Body. But Colson has just done a rewrite of this book that is now called Being the Body. 
It's one of my favorite phrases. It buzzes around in my head all the time. The church being the church. Can we just be the church? Let's not try to be like the world. Let's not try to be something that, that is, you know, what people are used to. Let's be the church. Be different. Be holy. Be unique. Be odd. Be peculiar. Be a little funky. That's okay. Be the church of the Bible. It's nothing new. God has been calling His church to be set apart as holy for millennia, and He is still calling. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7. God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. This is a harsh quote. But on Sunday morning, January 24th, 1861, Charles Haddon Spurgeon closed his sermon in the Metropolitan Tabernacle with these words, An unholy church is of no use to the world and of no esteem among men. Oh, it is an abomination. It is hell's laughter. It is heaven's abhorrence. And the larger the church, the more influential, influential, the worst nuisance does it become when it becomes dead and unholy. The worst evils which have ever come upon the world have been brought upon her by an unholy church. And so what is the answer to the unholy church in the world? A holy church. What do you mean this one? The British Christian Fellowship? No, I don't mean this one. This is the fellowship. This is a tiny little finger in the whole entire body of the church. God is calling the church in mass to holiness. Whether it's here or there or anywhere else, God is calling His church to holiness. Did you know that the church was not man's idea at all? People who hate the church, who say the church stinks, who have been hurt or burned by the church... It wasn't man's idea. It was God's idea. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. My church. I will build it. Which means, by the way, we don't have to. Which is good news. I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The church is not man's to own or control. It is the Lord's. I spent some time, really good time, with Gary and Carrie Shepherd, missionaries from Nepal just a week ago. And I don't know if I shared this with all of you. I know I shared it with the elders and their wives the other evening. But he made a statement that I think is so perfect for what we're attempting to be as, as his children. He was talking about how going back to Nepal, he, he's been asked not to return because he's too well known as a Bible translator. But he's planning a trip back there this year. And so I asked him, I said, well, how are you going to do it? How are you going to get in? And he says, not my problem. I love that. It's not my problem. Well, how are you going to pull it all together? I mean, you got to go through some governmental uh, lines, or you get them. What are you going to do, Gary? How's it going to work? It's not my problem. It is not my problem. We're sitting on a property right here that is uh, illegal, and it's not illegal. But a church is not supposed to meet in a barn, folks. A church is not supposed to meet on private property. A church of this size, which none of us expected, is not supposed to be here right now. Now, the county knows we're here, and they've asked us just to kind of keep quiet and not advertise and not put out any signs, and yet God keeps bringing people. (laughs) And I say, Lord, they said no signs, and you're still advertising. (laughs) But you know what? You know what? It's not my problem. If the county shows up today and shuts it down, it's not my problem. This is God's church. 
one part of the much larger church body, but it's his. It's not our problem. What are we worried about? It's not our problem. Our problem is to focus on Jesus. It's exactly what Harlan says. And once again, God dovetails exactly what is shared at communion with what he wanted to share to the whole body this morning. Focus on Jesus. That's our issue. The point is putting God first. That's what matters to the body. That's what the church is to do. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. We should always give thanks to God for you, he says, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God invites you this morning to something completely different. Completely unique to something that is holy. Therefore, brethren, 2 Peter 1 verse 10, Be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. You are the recipients of Leviticus. You are the called. And you might say, I don't know if I am. How do I know if I'm the called? How do I know if God is calling me in this world? And the answer is, if you're asking the question, you've been called. You have been called. God is calling you right now. Do you have ears to hear? Jude 1, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. The called. Would you stand up with me? Let's pray together. With heads bowed as we pray this morning. Let me just share with you, and go ahead and keep your heads bowed. Uh, Greg Gilmore is going to be baptized this morning as a recommitment to this faith today. Down the pond. Great came to me last week and said, Rick, uh, is that okay? Can I get baptized a second time? And I said, well, why do you want to do that? And Greg said, because I want to recommit. It is time for me to recommit my life to the Lord. And I'm not sure that anything pleases our Father more than when His people want to be more holy. Father in heaven, Jesus, we come before you today desiring this very thing that we've talked about. So this is not just an introduction to a book. This is the truth of the Gospels. So you have called us for salvation, through sanctification, that you might work in us wonderfully, miraculously, your very glory. And so this morning, we stand before you, God, to commit our hearts to you. And whether we've ever committed to you before or not, we want to stand and say from this day forward, we desire to be your called out ones, to be different, to just be the church, the Bible. God, would you grant your church 
in this region a phenomenal, phenomenal power by your Holy Spirit. Would you rush through here like a great wind and permeate every fiber of every being of every Christian that we would live differently. That the holiness in our lives so obvious and so obviously not of us would have impact. Would be, Father, as great advertisement, if you will, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that evangelism would happen by the power of your Holy Spirit. And that you would raise up a voice for your people. For those who have been called to stand in holiness and love, love and holiness.